Naperville is home to hundreds, if not thousands, of stories. As time goes by, many of those stories are lost to us. Part of NCTV 17's mission is to capture, tell, and preserve those stories. Maybe it's the story of a person whose accomplishments should never be forgotten. Other stories come from a time and a place that reflects where we come from and who we are because of it. Still, there are stories which may seem small, but on closer examination, they tell us almost everything we need to know about family, community, and even country. These documentaries are available on the NCTV 17 website as they were originally intended, as visual media. By putting them online as a podcast, they no longer have the photographs from the time or the graphics we produced. Yet the power of the story endures by listening alone. Let the sounds of these documentaries open up before you and learn more about the people and places that helped make Naperville the community it is today. In the 19th century, one German family would hear a young country's call and immigrate to America in the hopes of finding a new home. As time passed, a father would step aside, two brothers would step up, a loss would threaten to tear the family apart and yet they would persevere, and the American dream would become a reality for the Stenger family. was 1842. Naperville, a small community in Illinois, was just being settled and its frontier spirit would be inviting to Peter Stanger and his family. Peter and his son Nicholas would turn to their experiences as brewers in Germany to earn a living for their family. A family like the Stangers had a lot on the line. They had just emigrated to the United States. They had risked everything they could to come here. Everything about brewing required nerve and daring and a gambler streak. And ultimately, what that all means is it required a fair amount of ambition. As Peter and Nick settled the family in Naperville, Peter's eldest son, John, had other plans. It was 1849, and the lure of the California gold rush called to him. You really see um, people drawn to Calif Northern California from around the world. And it's certainly a, it, you certainly see it here in Naperville, and you see it in the Chicago area more generally, that people um, take advantage of this. This is, the, this is where you're going to get rich fast. To me, uh, he was a, a very handsome, uh, romantic figure in, in my past. John was very lucky in the gold fields. He, he made quite a fortune. We never heard of any special amount but we always knew that our great-grandfather was very rich. While the Stengers settled in Naperville, the nation as a whole would experience record numbers of German immigrants between 1840 and 1880. They came to America fleeing political unrest and uncertainty, bringing with them skills and cultural ideas that would influence America. The thing about the German migrants that we want to keep in mind is the ones that we see coming into Naperville, by and large are people, by education, or by land ownership are really middle class or, or, or it's striving. And often it's younger sons that are coming. So it's, you know, a first son is gonna be 
the, get the family business or the family farm, and these are second and third sons that are often coming with their families to, to start anew. That's exactly what people say when they look at the history of beer in America, is that mainly it's all the Germans that left Germany and came over here. You know, you've got a little bit of Belgian, you've got a little bit of Czechoslovakian, but mainly it's the Germans who came in and settled in such large scale and they brought beer with them. The German immigration in Naperville definitely shaped Naperville. While John sought his fortune in gold out west, Peter and his son Nicholas turned to Naperville to pursue their own fortune in gold by brewing beer. Peter Stanger was a brewer from Germany. He came over to Naperville. Uh, perhaps he knew cousins here, relatives, other people from the village. He might have known Jacob Engelfried. Jacob Engelfried was reported to have started a brewery in Naperville in about 1846-48, that uh, Peter Stenger was his first um, manager. Peter was the real brewmaster. Peter knew the brewery business inside and out. Looking towards the future of their family, Peter and his son Nicholas started their own brewery. Only one thing was missing, their son and brother, John. At some point between 1846 and 1851, John and Nicholas formed the partnership and the father stepped out. I speculate that Nicholas was the actual brewer learning the trade from the father and that it was John who left to go in the gold field to make money and that John was brought back into the fold because he had the money. He could build these malt houses. After finding success in the gold rush, John traveled to New York before joining his father and brother in Naperville, bringing with him the German tradition of music in the form of a Jenny Lind piano. Jenny Lind is kind of a, a uh, she's a popular artist. Germans are bringing with them a love of music, a love of performance, and a support for uh, artists and for musicians in particular. Um, Jenny Lind is going to be one of the first um, truly famous traveling musicians in the United States. They have an appreciation of, of high culture, of classical music, um, but they also have a very strong appreciation generally of bringing that to as many people as possible. All music doesn't have to be highbrow, that music should be aimed at you know, a very effete audience, uh, middle-brow audience, and people in, in the beer gardens, everybody should enjoy music. And it was surprising to me that a young unmarried man would, would buy a piano, and he had to have it sent to Naperville uh, ahead of him by train. And uh, that piano was in the family, in the Stenger family, and then in the German family all my life. They would have um, dances at their home and with all the girls would dance together and have fun. They'd roll up the carpet and dance in the, in the house. Naperville had all the ingredients the Stengers would need to brew. Plenty of land, natural spring water, easy access to hops and barley, and a large immigrant community ready to man the brewery and embrace a welcome taste from their old country. Joseph Naper sold to Peter Stenger Sr in 1849, three acres of ground north of Franklin Street. But the entire estate went much further north up to across the railroad tracks and up to Ogden, and, and that had pasture land. But you have to also realize the brewery sat at the southern end of a larger estate that, had its, that was self-sufficient. Chickens and cows and orchard and perhaps a vineyard, uh, fresh spring water, 
um, plenty of hay, um, plenty of farm ground for, you know, vegetable gardens. Some of those resources were used to, to feed and to board the workers that work there. So like I said, it was almost like a little micro community. Stenger is, is certainly providing jobs for workers, so for working class people, and there's lots of jobs in these breweries. He's also providing then a product which people who can afford it will be able to take advantage of. And of course, beer is not straightforwardly a middle class product. It's a product that's going to be consumed across, uh, across classes. You have to realize this is a, a large, small brewery. You had a, a large malt house three stories tall. You had a, a brew house nearly four stories tall. The brew house is full of pipes and vats and big kettles and you have in your malt house you have large bins of, of grain and you have uh, malt being produced in, in big vats and things. Um, so it, you know the men that worked in these breweries were, were stout men. You know they were hauling bushels of grain and, and rolling barrels and lifting quarter barrels and eighth barrels and barrels are heavy especially when they're full of beer. So th there's heavy manual labor um, but the reward is the beer at the end of the day. The Stanger's brew was unlike anything Americans were drinking. While most of the population was quenching its thirst with whiskey, the Stangers were brewing a different kind of beverage, lager beer. The German brewing process was considerably different. Bottom fermented lagers, also very robust. These were hardy beers that, that, that lived, had long lives, and, and they had a lot of food value also. A variety of beer that was virtually unknown in the colonies or in the young United States up until the German immigration uh, of, uh, of the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. But a, a, a style of beer that is still with us today. There's only two styles of beer in the world. There's ales and lagers. To use a lager yeast was uh, definitely cutting edge back then, but it also meant much longer aging times. They probably did that on purpose because lack of refrigeration, so they would brew from about November to March and then they would store the beer from March to November in caves as refrigeration wasn't very widely used back then. Uh, so to have a lager yeast instead of an ale yeast was definitely very different. Brewing a lager beer required patience, practice, and a cool temperature. With no refrigeration technology, the Stingers turned to nature's own cooling abilities and built underground beer tunnels. I think one of the major ingredients that made Stanger Brewery work here is the fact that they were able to cellar the beer, that they could you know, use the limestone to build the, the malt house and build the uh, arched lagering tunnels, um, and the fact that they could, they could tunnel into this limestone base that kept the beer at a constant temperature and the correct temperature. As a child, I would play in the tunnels that they used to store the beer. I can remember running through the tunnels. Oh, it was very dark, yeah, and it was very cold. And uh, yes, they were, they were large, so you'd, 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 it, it was scary for, for a kid. As time passed, tastes and technologies gave us the beers we know today, but left behind the beers that started it all. So the question remains, what did Stenger beer taste like? When Stanger and other German immigrants began to arrive in the 1840s and 1850s, they were making lager beer, but they were making Bavarian lager beer, and that was an all-malt, fairly heavy, 
fairly opaque brew. Very sharp taste uh, in, in terms of the hop flavor. Uh, beer that tastes, you know you're drinking beer. You know, it, it has a, a, a full body, probably a very, very uh, golden amber color. Uh, a, a, a more than likely a, a, a nice collar or the head of the beer. Uh, there's a, we envision a real richness because some of these small microbreweries are now trying to replicate some of these formulas. With such local establishments as the Washington House Saloon and the J.J. Shock Saloon, the Stenger Brewery had a welcome home in Naperville, but the taste of Stenger Lager was known far beyond its borders. The way that they were brewing maybe appealed to certain Chicago tastes. And so maybe a couple saloons in Chicago specifically contracted with John Stanger or Nick Stanger for that particular beer, which was very common that saloons would be exclusive to one particular brand or two brands of beer. I think there was a form of uh, business or gentleman's respect of territory. Every small brewer or even large brewer had their own taste, their own flavor. So there are gonna be people that come to like the Stanger Lager. Some of John Stanger's contemporaries were the folks up in Milwaukee. Uh, Jacob Best uh, founded his brewery uh, in the 1830s. Jacob Best's brewery evolved into a, into a, a fairly well-known brewery called Pabst, the Pabst Brewing Company. Uh, Pabst would have not distributed in competition with Peter, John, or Nick Stanger. So from 1851, for 20 years, the Stangers pretty much ruled the roost in the brewing industry in DuPage County. You'd think that his beer must have been really good quality because if people wanted it all the way there and he had to ship it that long a distance and he became popular outside of his little niche area of Naperville, he must have been making pretty darn good beer. The appeal for beer was twofold. The American palate was changing and safe water was still a concern. Even in the late 19th century, there were still questions about water quality. Beer is safe. There's nothing that can live in beer that can hurt you. There's no pathogens, nothing. It can taste bad, but it can't hurt you. So back then, beer was safer to drink than water. So everyone drank it. I mean, they used to pour it in what they call growlers, which was more or less an open pail that you would go to the brewery with your pail. They'd fill it up, and you'd walk home with this open pail of beer for for the night. They would just go to the saloon with their little pail and fill it up and walk home and sometimes they made it home and sometimes it was gone before they got home. Not only did German immigrants introduce a new beer to America, they also introduced a new concept. Leisure time. Enjoying a glass of fresh beer became a national pastime. They like to, to relax, they like to enjoy life. Um, family oriented, Sunday in Germany, and to a large degree, it's still that way today. Sunday is a family day, and in those days, uh, in, in the days of Naperville in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, well, Sunday, you, you went out, you went to a beer garden. The Germans were not roaring drunks, but they enjoyed their, their bratwurst and their beer. Drinking beer 
is not an end in itself. I guess that's really an important way of thinking about this, that the setting where the beer is going to be consumed, that beer is a, a part of a feast um, or a small repast, depending on what it is. I mean, there's wonderful descriptions of uh, Germans going into a beer garden and uh, long, long descriptions of all the pastries being served, right? So um, not straightforwardly that people were going to, to, um, to drink beer, but the beer was a part of what was being offered. One of the things that dismayed German-Americans like Stanger was the drinking culture that had existed in the United States. American taverns were dark, smoky, the floors were covered with spit and nutshells and whatever had been spilled or dropped on it. They, they were unpleasant places and respectable people did not go in them. One of the pieces here that, that you want to keep it, we want to keep in mind when we're talking about beer consumption, picnic groves, uh, and, and beer gardens is just this whole idea of a lot of this activity is only taking place on Sundays because it is the day off. It's when people will have the time to be able to, uh, to go out. And Sundays, yeah, uh, we go back to the idea that there's been this huge religious revival in the United States. It's largely a Protestant revival. And one of the things that, a couple of things are being pushed. One of them is that Sunday is uh, a day of rest. And that is, again, separate and apart from the work week. So it is a notion of leisure, but it's not exactly leisure. It's time set apart that will be used for religious purposes, right? That that's a day set apart in that way. Germans have a different view of this, and they see Sunday as, yes, a day of rest, a day potentially of, um, of religion, but uh, it's also a day to celebrate being out of doors. It's a day to celebrate uh, freedom of having some time to spend with your family in um, as pleasant a place as you can afford. As time went on, the Stenger family enjoyed greater success. Then tragedy struck. Nicholas Stenger died at 35 years of age. While Neighborville lost a community leader, John Stenger lost not only his beloved brother, but as business partner as well. Anytime that any partnership breaks up, and any, whether it's just two partners, in this case, two operating partners, and I could have other heirs working in the business, but you've got two management, um, two management people here. Both tend to have, as common today, um, certain skills or certain talents, or at least they divide the business up into different portions. Whatever those skills are, whenever the partner dies, uh, you have a tremendous void. Even if they both do both, all aspects of the business well, you still have your partner dying. So when you had did only 50% of the work, now you're doing 100% of the work. So you had a tremendous loss, and usually you have to fill that gap. After Nicholas's death at the law offices of H.H. Cody, the Stenger family learned how his will would forever shape their future. I, Nicholas Stenger, of the town of Naperville and the county of DuPage and state of Illinois, being of weak body but of sound mind and memory, do hereby make, publish, and declare this, my last will and testament. I do hereby authorize and empower my said brother John Stanger, executor and trustee, under and by virtue of this will. Nicholas Stanger's will was several pages long and it was very specific. The first part of the will is like anybody's will. Please take care of all my debts, make sure that everything is paid for. Second part, make sure my widow is taken care of and my family. 
no specific allotments as to how much cash is going to which person. Then he, the next few pages, he outlines very, very clearly the establishment of a trust between his brother, John, and himself. Even in death, Nicholas had a vision for how his family would endure and how the business that he and his brother created would thrive. Over the next six to eight years, John was to run the brewery and he was to infuse the capital, to build the brewery up, to make it a good name. And during that time, he was to take care of their father, take care of their brothers, and they were to take care of his widow and his family. And then at the end of that time period, John bought out his brothers half of the trust. And therefore, it, then it became, rather than John and Nicholas Stenger, that name is pretty much gone now. Now it's just John Stenger or Stenger Brewery. I think he and his brother really, you know, liked each other. I think they were very close. Um, I think that uh, he, he wanted to take care of the business as if it were his brother still alive. No one was prepared for Nick's untimely death, least of all his wife Elizabeth and his daughter Mary. Unsettled feelings would drive Mary to file a civil suit against her uncle John. The prosperous future the Stenger family had sought in Naperville became shrouded in uncertainty. Mary, the niece, wanted, wanted this brewery to be sold sooner. Um, wanted, I think, to maybe either get out of the brewery business altogether, no longer associate the name with the brewery. What she's claiming is the brewery mismanagement. She's, she's kind of airing dirty laundry towards the end of her civil suit. When you read his response to Mary's complaint, he's almost hurt that anyone would think this about him, that he has, he has done everything by his brother's wishes. And he doesn't even mention, you know, he's fulfilled the duties of the court. But more importantly, he's fulfilled the duties of his, of his dead brother and former business partner. According to the last eight years of records, they had been given monthly allowances that in the long run was greater than what the court actually awarded them in the end. So it's a, it's a situation where, according to the will, the brewery had to be sold. I think it was just a matter of what time. John Stenger chose to buy out Nicholas's half of the trust. According to the inventory, the Stenger Brewery sold more than $75,000 worth of beer. In today's terms, those sales equal $965,000. Even though John's beer sales were steadily increasing, there was a temperance movement growing in America to eradicate alcohol in the hopes of curing society's ills. Beer in any form was not to be tolerated. It was evil. It was seen as not only very, very unchristian-like to drink, it was seen also as a reason for poverty, for general decadence, for uh, uh, marital discord. Beer was just seen as the root cause of just about every evil. German Americans, of course, had no interest whatsoever in temperance. This didn't make any sense to them at all, but it also didn't make sense to them to get drunk. Their idea of what you did with a glass of lager was sit down with your friends, your wife, your children, play cards, sing, 
listen to some music or dance, talk politics. The great irony is that in many cities throughout the United States, dozens of cities, juries actually upheld the notion that lager was not intoxicating. It was not even considered to be something that couldn't be sold on Sunday. It was actually not an, an intoxicating beverage. And that is the moment when Americans began to think about beer as an alternative to hard liquor and the German drinking model, far more important, as an alternative to this almost shameful demonization of alcohol that had been dominant in American society. The temperance movement faced strong resistance from German immigrants, brewers, and beer-loving Americans. While that threat was held at bay, John looked to the immediate future of his brewery. He took special interest in a young worker that would later become one of the greatest legends in the history of American brewing. John Stanger was a mentor for Adolf Coors. Adolf Coors started work with John Stanger in 1869. Adolf Coors would have been 22 at the time. John Stanger, 44. John Stanger took this young lad under his wing. Must have really impressed him to make him a, a, a manager, basically a manager of his brewery. He supervised people who were involved in the brewing process. You cannot be around a small brewery without knowing how to do everything. So there was, there was an opportunity to bring what apparently was a very ambitious, bright, hardworking, young German immigrant into the fold. And I'm sure it would have been John Stanger's hope if we could, if we could put ourselves in John Stanger's place at the time that this young man would have stayed with him. John Stanger hoping to preserve the brewery he and his brother had worked so hard to build, looked to his daughters, rather than his son, to secure a future for his brewery. Grandfather looked around in the brewery and he had these nice looking young men and working for him and he liked them. And he tried to marry off his daughters with, and with the story that he tried to marry uh, Anna and uh, Adolf Coors didn't work out. Marriage back then was much, much different, you know, it, it's almost barbaric, but it was somewhat about bettering one's position and, and bettering one's financial situation. Did John really want to marry one of his daughters just to keep the business going? Maybe, but from every indication that I found that John was a very loving father and a very loving grandfather, and this is indicated by the manuscripts that we have written by the granddaughters. I'm sure that Adolf didn't, didn't favor a a stinger daughter for a, a wife. You can't put them together, you know, you have to. It has to be a natural relationship. Adolf Coors chose not to marry into the Stinger family and inherit the Stinger Brewery. He had more John Stinger in him than anyone realized. As John had done nearly 20 years earlier, Coors headed west to seek his own fortune. I think that, that Coors left um, for a multiple of reasons. Um, about 1872, 1873, the family's going through their litigation. He doesn't want a part of a business that's potentially failing uh, and that he knows. I'm sure the workers speculated about the intrigues of the two different families, you know, and about the intrigues of the court. Um, also, you know, young Adolf is in no position to buy the business at the time it needs to be sold. He's been, a, he's been an employee of John Stanger. He's 
he doesn't have capital. So he sees it as a time to, to go on. Time and time and time again, someone starts out working for someone like Stanger, works a few years, saves diligently, because that was the key. They needed their own investment funds and takes off for other places. The, the scenario happened repeatedly in the history of American brewing. Even without an heir apparent, the Stanger Brewery continued to be successful. The brewing industry, however, was about to experience great technological advances that would test the budget and the will of family-run breweries. In all businesses, I think there's a combination of, of um, management talent, um, somebody who has a vision, somebody who can change the business as the market um, is changing. All small brewers, them back then and us now, we say we have to manage our limitations, and a lot of our limitations are financial. Um, you know, if you don't go out and raise a lot of money, you're gonna have to figure out what you need to skip in order to still do what you do. And yeah, back then you would think that refrigeration was just coming into uh, the public eye, and that would be a huge investment. New technology is always expensive. The introduction of bottling technology would forever change the face of the brewing industry. Storing beer in bottles would free beer drinking from the saloon and introduce its consumption to the home. John Stanger was intrigued by what bottling would mean to his business. Tom Majeski, a local bottle collector, found the only Stanger bottles in existence while digging on Naperville land. We got to the bottom of the hole and found the neck of a bottle and it looks kind of different. We just found the neck and we didn't know what it was because there wasn't anything there. And then I pulled out a piece of glass, and it had dirt on it, and I rubbed it, and my chest just started pounding. I go, this looks like it says John Stanger. Tom Majeski found the remains of five or six amber-colored, what appear to be beer bottles. They're a mold-blown beer bottle. They have a blob top, and that's where that, that top was put on manually at the end. They are stamped on the bottom with a Pennsylvania glass manufacturer. They are stamped on the side, however, they say Naperville, Indiana. So it's speculated that since all of these fragments of bottles were found in the same privy here in Naperville, that they were perhaps samples that that glass or bottle company sent to John Stanger, and he rejected them based on the fact that the mold was incorrect and he did not want to invest in glass bottling. I suspect that those bottles that were in the inventory were used internally by the family. You know, it's easier to have bottles of beer sitting in a crock with ice in it than it would be to have a barrel in your kitchen. And maybe they used them for picnics. You know, maybe they used them for short time use. There was no bottling equipment in the inventories, so it's, it, it doesn't appear that they were bottling there on site. If they were, they were doing it by hand. I found three or four ads from 19, or 1872 to 1873, and in big bold letters, bottled beer. And it says that Jacob Keller will, this summer, bottle beer for customer's convenience. He will sell these by the dozen. He's billing them as, you know, healthy, drinky, and it's good for curing. Uh, that Chicago's been stricken with uh, disease, but we're healthy in Naperville because we're drinking Stanger Lager beer. 
It's most likely that Stanger sold the barrels to Jacob, and Jacob bottled them, set them in coolers, and had them ready for his patrons. In 1890, the early 1890s, only somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 or 5% of all the beer sold in the United States was bottled. And virtually all of that beer was sold by perhaps the top five beer makers in the United States because bottling equipment was still very, very expensive. It, it required an enormous investment in equipment. So most brewers continued to do what they had always done, which was put the beer in barrels and, and ship those barrels as far afield as they possibly could. He was not producing on a scale large enough to make it profitable for him to invest in bottling. And, and Americans preferred draft beer. Bottling beer proved too great an investment for John Stanger to make at this stage of his life and his business. Rather than change the very nature of his company, John returned to his search for an heir. His daughters Mary and Barbara married two capable men from the brewery, Joseph Eggerman and Joseph Schaumburger. Joseph Eggerman learned the brewery trade from his father, Xavier Eggerman, eventually buying the business and running it for a time. Joseph Schaumburger was another young German immigrant with experience in the brewery trade. Joseph Schamberger uh, began to court Mary, his daughter Mary, you know, and they were married in Naperville. And this, and this is where the, the family breakups first began. Uh, uh, Schamberger uh, heard of a, of a friend in uh, way out in Oregon who worked in a brewery, and there was a good position open there. And he was very anxious to move on, on his own. And so he and Mary um, moved out to Astoria, Oregon. Joseph Schomburger was uh, married to Mary Stenger. He was listed as a brewmaster for the uh, North Pacific Brewery and they lived in um, Upper Town, Upper Astoria, not very far away from the brewery. John Stenger's search for an heir would prove impossible. Joseph Eggerman's health declined prematurely, and the lure of success in Oregon would prove too great for Joseph Schaumburger. With no one to carry on the business, the time had come for him to sell the brewery that had been a part of him for more than 40 years. You think about what it means to be an American, right, is this um, ability to move, that there are new places being settled, there's new places to move in and start your own business. And Stanger does this himself, right, when he comes to Naperville, leaving, one assumes, with skills like that from Germany. I mean, he had to learn how to make beer, uh, and one assumes that he brought that with him. And so he's going to teach a new generation, and that generation, he may hope, was going to stay put. You can't hold on to a younger, talented generation straightforwardly, but they may well move on. Later on, they're facing not only regional competition, but international competition, right? So you've got all these, it's not so much competition for the beer as the companies. And they start buying up all the big breweries in Chicago, and so there isn't much left by 1900 of locally owned breweries in Chicago. And the Stengers seemed to get out just about that point. He did not want to change with, with times. As times changed and different beers were brewed, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to stick with the beer that he had always brewed because that was the true beer, or, you know, the best. He didn't want to change. 
Another reason I think he, he closed up shop in 1892 is from 1851, when he and his brother and his father were running it, um, it had been a family affair. Uh, it was very close, tight-knit German immigrants. They were housed and boarded right there in the brew house. Um, it was a very close community. As I said, it was a large, small operation, but ultimately it was a small business. He was 65 years old. That's old. In, in 1890, that's old. Even though he did live into his 80s, 85, died, almost 86 years old. He, was, he died in 1911 in Naperville. It was time to maybe hang it up. He had worked hard all his life. In 1892, John Stenger sold his brewery to Henan Gabler for $76,000. Today, that would amount to more than $1,500,000. Eventually, the majestic brewery buildings would be bought by a large brewing conglomerate in Chicago, then would pass hands again and again, until finally in 1959, the buildings were sold to the Illinois Bell Telephone Company, who would demolish them and then build a new structure where they once stood. Once the family brewery and land was sold, many of John Stenger's descendants settled on the West Coast in Oregon and California. My father was a teetotaler. His family were very much opposed to drinks of any kind. And mother loved beer, naturally, you know. And the only time we ever saw her drink beer was when she was ironing. She was in the room. And when she had a lot of ironing to do, she'd have, she'd have a, a beer there. And she would, she said, she would tell us, you know, it's all right. She said, it's for health purposes. Nick's descendants would stay on in Naperville, close to the roots their family had planted, and create a legacy of their own. He had three grandsons, Emmett, would carry on the family's entrepreneurial spirit with a successful business venture, moving to Iowa and spreading the Stenger name West. Grant and Oliver would prove to be incredibly successful at the most popular of American pastimes in the 20th century, sports. A little more than 25% of the American population at the end of the 20th century claimed German ancestry. That's a large contribution to American culture. But by the time you get to the third, fourth generation, you're totally Americanized. My father was quite an athlete all through uh, high school and college. He became quite famous with his brother, Ollie, at uh, North Central College, which was called Northwestern at that time. And they became known as the um, famous Stanger brothers, very famous in football, and in basketball, on the five people on the basketball team, uh, Grant and Ollie would always be there. One or the other would be the captain. Ollie Singer was my father-in-law, uh, and he was an exceptional guy. I think one of the best things about his high school group, he was a pitcher, on the, on the, he pitched every game in, in, the, in high school. And he batted either third or cleanup. Now that, a pitcher usually, well, in the American League, the, the pitchers don't bat at all. They've got a designated hitter. But Ollie was so good that even though he was a pitcher, he batted third, which is, you know, the big spot, or cleanup. He was batting where the heavy hitter bats. Uh, and, and looking at the almost every game, he would, he would have a hit or two, and frequently a home run. 
Uh, he was just a, a natural baseball player. And did the same thing at, in, in, in basketball and football. Just as their grandfather's brewery had its brush with greatness with Adolf Coors, Grant and Oliver would have the opportunity to become legends themselves. In those days, if you wanted to make any money, it was in baseball. So my uncle was an excellent pitcher, and he got a contract with the St. Louis Cardinals. My dad was a big, strong first baseman and home run hitter, and he got a nice contract with the Chicago Cubs. And their father was a very strict German. So guess what happened? The two of them showed my grandfather, their father, the two contracts that they were so proud of on a Sunday after church and had a nice discussion. And the grandfather took the two contracts, tore them up, threw them on the floor, and said, no son of mine is playing baseball on Sunday. So that was it. The two boys respected their father, and so they never went on to play professionally, which was a real shame. Even though Grant and Oliver were denied their chance of becoming professional baseball players, they would not give up their love of sports. Oliver would coach football at LaGrange High School, while Grant would coach football, basketball, and track at Wheaton High School. Both men would leave a lasting mark on the young men whose lives they touched. All of their lives, Grant and Oliver had played on the same team. As coaches, however, they found themselves on opposing teams for the first time ever. He played uh, his brother's team in LaGrange, and that was the, the, the big famous game because LaGrange had a, a tremendous uh, football team and so did Wheaton. I remember the grandfather, Nick, would uh, sit with my dad for the first half, and then on the second half, he would go across and sit with Ollie, uh, who was teaching the uh, LaGrange team. But it, uh, the rivalry was just a lot of fun. It was never that serious, you know. That, uh, after, after the game was over, everybody was still friends and so forth. The tradition of hard work and dedication that John and Nick Stenger displayed when they ran the Stenger Brewery was seen again in the lives of Nick's grandsons, Grant and Oliver. Even though Grant and Oliver were quintessentially American and their grandfather was German, the years in between were linked through strong ambition, family devotion, and an old world work ethic. The Stenger family, now in its seventh generation, still displays the same character that made up John and Nick. Great business acumen, hard work, courage, and great love and pride in their family. For the Stenger family, the great risk that their ancestors took in pursuing the American dream has come full circle. You know, to come to a country and, and start a brewery, for goodness sakes, that's not an easy job. You're hiring people, you've got payroll to meet, you've got all the, all the raw materials to buy, you've got to buy the hops and the malt, and you've got to buy the vats, you got to... It's a big job, and you have to be a leader to do that. You have to be an entrepreneur and you have to be able to get people to work for you. I think that the entrepreneurial spirit that uh, was carried uh, to Naperville by the Stengers from Germany and has been carried down throughout the generations is definitely something that I'd like my son to, to pick up on. 
His vision is that he's going to make a, a better world for his family, going to provide employment for his family, for his community. Yeah, he's, he's very much a figure that would be pleased, I suspect, with the success that Naperville has had and the direction Naperville has gone. For millions and millions and millions of human beings, the American dream was made real. They left someplace, and every day still do, leave someplace where life is difficult, risk everything they have to come here, and the Brewers' ambitions, their drive, their willingness to envision something, to create something out of nothing, that exemplifies everything that is tangible and real about this kind of corny idea of the American dream.